I'm pretty astounded that you pulled that off. Well done. Our second scripture is taken from the gospel according to Mark, verses 21 to 28. They, Jesus and the disciples, went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching? With authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Now, God, may the words of my mouth And the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and redeemer. Amen. I was as prepared as I could possibly be. I'd read the books. I'd gotten all the vaccinations, yellow fever, typhoid, all of them. I had a year's supply of anti-malarial medicine, bottles of Pepto-Bismol and Imodium, all the drugs I could possibly need. The water was not safe to drink, so I had bought a SteriPen, this cool technology that will sterilize water for you, just in case I didn't have the ability to boil my water. I'd studied the language, I knew the history, and the terrible colonization by Belgium, even sampled the food and been taught the proper way to eat in Shima, their staple meal. And so I felt like I was becoming a bit of an authority on this new country I'd be living in. But they didn't tell me about the exorcisms. Ten years ago, it's hard to believe, but ten years ago, I moved to the country of Zambia, a country just south of Congo, to live and work as a missionary in partnership with TEEZ, T-E-E-Z, which stands for Theological Education by Extension in Zambia, It was an organization that focused on training lay people in leadership skills and Christian education. After receiving a two-year fellowship with Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church, I lived for a year in the concrete jungles of Manhattan on the Upper East Side of New York City and a year in Kitwe, Zambia, in the Copper Belt province where mining copper and other minerals was the main industry. It's hard to say which experience was more eye-opening. I traveled fairly extensively before, but never lived abroad and never been to Africa and certainly never lived as a minority. It was a couple of years that blew my worldview wide open. It was exciting and challenging, wonderful, isolating and lonely, and even scary at times. 
I was able to visit 13 or more countries in Africa and Asia, seeing God's global church at work. My white skin seemed as bright as the sun wherever I went, and I received more marriage proposals than I can count. I visited a village in the bush on, or the remote countryside that had never seen a white person before and was honored with witnessing their ancient traditional dances with full masks and costumes. But they didn't tell me about the exorcisms. Now I'm fairly certain in saying that few Presbyterian church pastors have ever taken exorcism 101, or perhaps I missed it. All right. While we often associate demon possession with other Christian traditions, maybe the Catholic Church or evangelical traditions, it is a part of nearly every church in Africa. Though I worked almost exclusively with Protestant churches in Zambia, deliverance ministry or exercising demons is an extremely important part of the church's work in this place. While thankfully I never was asked to take part in an exorcism, it was not uncommon to enter a church and hear one happening or be shown a video of a pastor's successful delivery of a demon on their cell phone. If I heard loud yelling and chanting, I knew what was happening. It is a gut-wrenching, startling experience if you've not witnessed one before. Often the flailing about and screaming that we might imagine, though no smitting heads, thankfully. Sometimes they are quiet, but they range the whole spectrum of experience. Now, before going to Zambia, I would probably just tell you that it was mental illness or epilepsy manifesting in folks claiming demon possession. Today, if you asked me, I don't have a firm answer for you. That is to say, while mental illness may often be a culprit, I do think there is something more happening. These Zambian pastors took this extremely seriously and provided a service that brought immense relief. Is it demons? Maybe, but I don't really know. But it was, but it was a part of their reality. And so I believe that there is something these African Christians experience that we have to learn from, some part of God's life that perhaps we are missing. What I do know is that these brothers and sisters in Christ are not afraid to claim Jesus' authority and help their suffering people seek healing. They do not hesitate to confront those lost in the darkness and seek God's presence seeking power in faith and God's desire for us to be healed. I don't always understand it, but it is powerful to behold. And so I'm sure that many of us are fascinated with stories such as this one in today's gospel reading, mostly because they seem so foreign to us and we don't know what to do with them. These gospel writers give us very little information and honestly, the particular ailments that affect the gospel characters don't really matter. What matters is the man that showed up time and again, put his hands on those considered unclean and outcast and healed them, looked them in the eye and said, 
You are loved. You are God's child. Be well. Be whole. Be restored to your humanity and to your community. Now Mark's gospel opens like a whirlwind. There is no birth story, no baby Jesus, no pregnant Mary, angels or shepherds. Instead, that strange man dressed in camel's hair, John the Baptist, appears, baptizes a full-grown Jesus, who then is thrust into the wilderness briefly to be tempted and tested. Emerging from the desert, Jesus calls his first disciples, and his ministry begins. First stop, Capernaum. His first four disciples trail behind him, following him into the synagogue there, for it is the Sabbath day. Jesus begins teaching, and all those in that place recognize that something about this man is different. While the scribes there knew the law inside and out, this man spoke as though he knew God. His authority was palpable. It was unlike anything the people had seen or heard before, opening new ways of thought and experience. Jesus had the law's power in his very presence, and the people were astounded. Christ's very words elicited deep responses in his listeners, something they hadn't felt before. But suddenly, the charged silence and amazement is disrupted. A disheveled and screaming man emerges from the crowd, approaching Jesus, attracted to him as if he's a magnet he can't resist. Some of the crowd groans, while others noticeably shift away from him, frightened. Everyone knows this unfortunate soul. Usually, this man is relegated to the gate entrance of the synagogue and not allowed entry, for he is unclean a spirit possessing him, and so everyone avoids him. His clothes hang in dirty rags, scars and wounds ravage his body, his name long forgotten, his voice long silenced, a demon has claimed his tongue, his body wretched from its presence. The synagogue leaders try to keep him back, but they can't. He is too strong and too determined to see Jesus. The demon within the man shouts, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Something about this man is unlike any they've seen before. It can't help but speak to Jesus. Now in the original Greek, the possessed man literally says, What is it to you and us? Which is a saying that means... Why bother us? We have nothing to do with each other. What we usually read as, leave us alone. And then whether it's hoping to use flattery or it can't help itself from stating what it knows to be true and rightfully fears, the unclean spirit tells Jesus that it knows who he is. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. While the people around Jesus still weren't sure who this man was, the demon knew exactly who Christ was and trembled before him. The darkness and evil of the world knew Christ was coming before its captives did. The shadows that trapped humanity feared the light coming to the world. 
Those in the crowd, much like many of us, are wondering where the synagogue security is, thinking surely this new rabbi will put him in his place and dismiss him and get back to his teaching. And Jesus does just that, but he doesn't turn away from the possessed man. Instead, he becomes his teaching, his authority revealed in power before the people. This man becomes human once more. And Jesus looks at him squarely, the dull eyes of a man long trapped in himself, a shell of what God first made him. And yet Jesus still saw him. Chelsea Harmon writes, we don't have to wait long to see what Jesus thought of this unclean spirit. With just a word, Jesus limits the power of the unclean spirit. What is translated as the command to be silent can also be be muzzled. As if it's a terrifying dog, Jesus muzzles the demon, his very words silencing the darkness and trapping it from further harm. The word is in the passive tense, so the command is the acting power itself. And in this command, Jesus makes the unclean spirit feeble, weak, unable to continue to use its words to exert its power. And by doing so, Jesus proves that the unclean spirit does not have real authority. It is just masquerading like all other evil spirits and forces in the world. Suddenly, as if seizing it from the depths of the man, Jesus casts it out. And this man is reborn, he is renewed, and he is restored. He was not beyond redemption because there is no such thing in the presence of Christ. Christ's presence mocks the darkness, and Christ's words cast it out, bringing a light that was thought impossible. There's a reason that Mark starts off this episode as the first of Jesus' ministries, of his ministry in this gospel. It is, of course, an amazing, astounding story of healing. A man is given his life back. But this encounter points us to Christ's ultimate mission in the world, the meta-narrative or larger story of God that dismantles the terrifying powers of this world that have ravaged us for too long. Call it demons or darkness or chaos or sin, it doesn't matter. What matters to God is life, and that is what Christ brought, reversing the binds of humanity, bringing healing and freedom even until his death and resurrection. And so Mark begins from the very beginning saying, evil must flee, Christ has arrived. Donald McKinn writes, God's care is crystallized and the establishment of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ who, as the kingdom himself, enacts the mind and heart of God in this story and all gospel stories. Here Jesus frees and liberates those who suffer, a paradigm of his wider work of salvation. Here we see our God who sees us and works for our healing. Here we see our God who breaks the terror and fear that holds us captive and grants us freedom to be whole and our true selves. Here, 
Christ's authority cannot be ignored, but all are drawn to Christ's power of liberation and healing. Each of us knows something of brokenness, of darkness that beckons and haunts us, whether we wear it as the demon-possessed man did outwardly or whether we keep it safely in the depths of our hearts where people don't even see it. Yet regardless, God says that there is a new story, one where we are not alone, but one where we are filled with God's new life. What I love about this is that Mark doesn't hold off until the resurrection at the end of his gospel, but dares us to see God's transforming work from the beginning. Our redemption is not to be seen later in another ethereal or heavenly place, but now, witnessing how God is moving in and through our world in every moment. Christ's word speaks today, and the darkness trembles. Therefore, we need not fear looking squarely at the darkness in ourselves or all around us in the suffering of this world, for we can boldly enter into it, for we know that Christ is there with us. Christ's Spirit accompanies us. Christ's Spirit invites us to do the same transforming work of muzzling that darkness. Amen.
Please be seated. Let us now join our hearts and minds together before God in prayer. Let us pray. God who has created all. God who has redeemed all. God who sustains all. By your word we ask again, astound us. Startle us from our own routines and our own safe thinking. Disrupt your church as we sit in our warm sanctuary and our comfortable pews with our perfectly seeming lives. Challenge us again and again in our faith, in our devotion, and in our witness. Continue to tear down the walls that divide us so that united in your truth, in your love, the church and all your people may confess your name, proclaiming one church, one faith, one baptism, calling us to sit at one table and to serve as one body in the one work of your coming kingdom. O God, by the movement and power of your Holy Spirit, open our ears that we might hear the cries of those who hunger and thirst for truth, for righteousness, and for justice. Open our eyes that we might see the injustice and pain that too often goes unnoticed. Use us in and through that same spirit to be the hands and feet of our risen Lord, showing your love and compassion. Make us the body, each one individually working to do all parts together. O God of mercy, strengthen this congregation in its work and in its worship. Fill our hearts again and again with your self-giving love, that our voices may speak your praise and our lives may conform to the image of your Son. Nourish us with your word and by your sacraments that we may may faithfully minister in your name and witness by our actions to your love and grace for all the world. O loving God, sustain those who need your loving touch. To those who are sick, bring healing. To those who are broken, bring wholeness. To those who are lost, bring guidance. To those who are lonely, bring your abiding presence. Hear again the names already spoken in our worship. Be with Libba, Linda, Anne, Wallace. But hear also the names that we now offer in the silence and stillness of this time and in our hearts. O gracious God, uphold all who suffer in body and in mind, not only those we know and love, but also those known only by you. Remind us that your word calls us to not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, to let our needs be made known. Give us a peace which surpasses all understanding, that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And hear us now as we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to say together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
Responding to the word we've heard and received, let us offer all that we have and all that we are to the Lord. Let us bring our time, our talents, our lives, and our offerings. 